Hello, this is UCL Uncovering Politics, and today we're looking at monarchy. Does it matter? And is it just coincidence that so many of the world's healthiest democracies are monarchies? Hello, my name is Alan Rennick, and welcome to UCL Uncovering Politics, the podcast of the School of Public Policy and Department of Political Science at University College London. The study of monarchy is not exactly fashionable in political science. Most of the world's surviving monarchies have little or no direct political power. And so we tend to assume that they are, at best, glitzy baubles on the margins of the political system. Monarchy feels perhaps more like a soap opera that is best confined to the pages of the tabloids. But a new book suggests otherwise and seeks to redress the balance. It's called The Role of Monarchy in Modern Democracy, and it compares across the eight constitutional monarchies of contemporary Europe. The Scandinavian monarchies of Denmark, Norway and Sweden, the Benelux monarchies of Belgium, the Netherlands and Luxembourg, plus Spain and the United Kingdom. The book argues that contemporary monarchy does deserve our attention and indeed that its impact can be positive. Well, to discuss the book and its key findings, I'm joined by one of its co-editors, Professor Robert Hazel, who was founding director of the Constitution Unit here at UCL between 1995 and 2015, and who remains Professor of Government and the Constitution. Welcome, Robert, to UCL Uncovering Politics. And let's get straight to the nub of things. Constitutional monarchs are basically monarchs who no longer exercise any direct political powers. So why should we, as students of politics, be interested in them? I think there are two reasons why. First, because we can apply all the usual conceptual tools of political science to monarchy as an institution. So we can look at them through the lenses of power, accountability, legitimacy, trust, loyalty, identity, etc. But secondly, These constitutional monarchies, uh, on paper, if you read the constitutions of the countries you've just mentioned, of Norway, Denmark, the Netherlands, etc., they appear to enjoy a huge amount of political power. Anyone coming from Mars reading those constitutions would think that the monarch still runs the country. But in practice, as we know, over the last couple of centuries, their political powers have been eroded almost to zero. Uh, They reign, but they do not rule. But they are still the ultimate guardian of the constitution. And very occasionally, that matters. Uh, Most recently, and very dramatically, King Juan Carlos, when he had been king for only five years in the newly democratic Spain, foiled an attempted coup d'etat in 1981, when Quite a big squadron of the civil guard burst into the parliament, held all the parliamentarians hostage, uh, and it looked for a a very nasty moment, as though the military coup might succeed. Um, But he put on his best uniform, went on television in the middle of the night, and as commander-in-chief ordered the troops back to their barracks and managed to fend off the coup. So uh, that's the most dramatic example. There was a slightly similar example in Norway, Uh, when during the Second World War they were invaded um, by Nazi Germany. And the then King of Norway, King Haakon VII, held a very dramatic meeting of his cabinet uh, because they were faced with a German ultimatum. 
the king was being asked to appoint Quisling as the head uh, of a new Nazi sympathizing government. And the king was very reluctant to do that and said to his cabinet, um, if you advise me to do that, then I advise you that as monarch, I will abdicate. So he was giving, as it were, a very strong moral lead to the Norwegian politicians, um, a dramatic moment, which is in a wonderful film called The King's Choice, if anyone um, cares to see it. The last example, the most recent example that you've provided there is Spain in 1981. From the viewpoint of many of our listeners, that's two lifetimes ago, uh, and, and therefore might not feel very current. Do monarchies play a role in politics in the kind of every day? Do, do they really matter other than at these really extreme moments? Well, in several uh, of the European countries, uh, which all have proportional uh, voting systems, an election very, very rarely uh, yields sing single party government. And in several of these countries, the monarch is still uh, very critically involved in the formation of a new government after an election. So uh, in just recently in Belgium, a new government has finally been formed composed of several different parties. And the King of Belgium um, is very closely involved, uh, standing back from the negotiations, uh, but being informed about them and ultimately inviting the person who emerges with the strongest support uh, to be the new prime minister. And they have uh, quite well-established procedures and conventions, uh, the king appointing an informateur uh, to keep himself informed of the negotiations, and then a formateur inviting someone to try to form a government. So that is the most important stage politically, where some of those European monarchs are still involved uh, in a fairly hands-off way, but nevertheless, um, a really important uh, political function. Okay, so sometimes at least monarchs are involved uh, kind of directly in politics. Is, th is that the entirety of the role that monarchs perform that political scientists ought to be interested in? Or do they other do other things that we ought also to be paying attention to? They do several other things. Uh, and it's the other things which I think uh, command the loyalty of their subjects. Because uh, famously, we know the general public are not hugely interested in politics. They may be pretty unaware of the important constitutional role that a monarch plays in terms of government formation. But they see the monarch uh, performing ceremonial roles, uh, performing representative roles, hosting state visits, going on state visits abroad, fostering therefore good international relations with other countries, etc. They see the monarch as a focus of national loyalty at times of crisis, uh, as well as at times of national celebration. It's interesting to note, for example, that at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis in April and May of this year, all eight of the constitutional monarchs in the European countries you mentioned gave a special address to the nation to, in effect, give their comfort to their people to rally them uh, at a time of national crisis. And you can see it uh, after national disasters. Uh, the Queen, for example, going to visit Grenfell Tower after the terrible fire there, or after serious terrorist incidents in Norway, uh, in Spain, the King immediately going to visit the victims um, and to show his support again for his people in, the in their time of trouble. And the monarch also has what we called a welfare role we, uh, in terms of 
um, supporting charities, supporting the public services, the armed forces, but also the health service, the police, etc., and by making visits. To be seen is to be believed, uh, and that's always been a vital function of the monarchy, and they work very hard uh, in making these visits all around the country. And I can certainly say that in the UK, I know from talking to Lord's Lieutenant, who are the monarch's representatives in each county, they receive far more demands and requests for royal visits than can be possibly sat satisfied uh, by the British royal family. So does that suggest that there is popular support and popular demand for monarchy in these countries? The degree of popular support for the monarchy in these European countries is quite extraordinary. They are subject to very regular opinion polling, and we had a whole chapter in our book about the polls and what they show. In brief, um, they show that in uh, the Netherlands, in Norway, in Denmark, in the UK, the monarch has popularity ratings of between 70 and 80%. These are ratings that politicians would die for. And in the other countries, it's not very much less. It's between 60 and 70%. Spain is the country where the monarchy has the least popular support, which is interesting. Uh, it's a recently restored monarchy. The Bourbon dynasty had a pretty bad reputation in the past. And the Spanish monarchy has recently been embroiled in some very serious scandals. So it was when opinion polls were showing that two-thirds of Spaniards felt King Juan Carlos should abdicate that he decided to step down in 2013. So the monarchy, uh, bizarrely, although it's a hereditary institution, is perhaps more accountable than people might think. Yes, I, well, you, you mentioned the word accountability earlier when you were talking about the sorts of political science concepts that are relevant in talking about monarchy, and I was I was struck by it. It's a curious word to use in the context of, of a hereditary institution that just seems to go on and on and on. But you're suggesting that actually there is an important strand of, of accountability in, I guess, not just the Spanish monarchy, but others as well. Indeed. And I was uh, surprised when doing the research for our book um, exploring the different ways in which monarchy is in effect accountable. And it's accountable through referendums. I found that 18 referendums were held during the 20th century in uh, nine different European countries, including several of the countries uh, within our study and others. So it was following a referendum that the monarchy was abolished in Italy and in Greece. It was following a referendum that the monarchy was restored in Spain. And there were referendums also um, in Denmark, in Luxembourg, uh, in the Netherlands, and in Norway. So that's one way in which the monarchy is very clearly directly accountable as an institution when the people are asked, do we want to retain the monarchy or not? Individual monarchs are, though also are accountable um, because they can be forced to abdicate. And again, during our study, I found that four European monarchs uh, have been forced to abdicate in the last 100 years, starting with the Grand Duchess of Luxembourg, Grand Duchess Marie Adelaide, um, who was forced to abdicate because of her conduct during the First World War. And uh, in Belgium, the King Leopold III was forced to abdicate because of his conduct during the Second World War. We all know in Britain about the abdication of our own king, King Edward VIII, because of his wish to marry a woman, Wallace Simpson, who had been twice divorced. And I've already mentioned 
the abdication of King Juan Carlos, uh, which wasn't forced by his government, um, but in effect it was response to his seriously growing unpopularity as shown in the opinion polls. So individual monarchs are accountable in that sense. Um, and if they get seriously out of line, they risk losing their thrones. So we see that the public support monarchy, at least in the eight countries that we're focusing on here, we see that there are mechanisms of accountability that are perhaps stronger than we would imagine. Nevertheless, can can we as as theorists of democracy, scholars of democracy, defend monarchy, defend the idea that we have these very um, privileged aristocrats playing this kind of role in our politics and our society? Well, I think uh, the main defense um, is simply that it does command such extraordinarily popular support. As I said, the opinion poll ratings between 60 and 80% are ratings that politicians would die for. Um, and so it is an institution that commands a very high degree of legitimacy in the eyes of the public. And the reasons for that are largely because uh, of the ceremonial role, the welfare role, the representative role. And monarchs have some advantages over the president of a republic um, in that, for example, because they are hereditary, uh, they haven't followed any kind of political contest of people who might want to be president, who've competed to be elected or appointed. Um, so nobody um, can be disappointed that they are not king or queen. With very clear rules of succession, there is only one person entitled to be the monarch. And a second reason is that you have a whole royal family. You have, in effect, an undying family. And different uh, members of the public can identify with different generations in the royal family. And royal families are much better known than the families of presidents in republics. So when I ask my children about the monarchy and which members of the family they identify with, no surprises, they identify with the people of their age, with Prince William and Kate, um, and not with people of my generation. So, I mean, are you suggesting there that monarchy can actually be good for democracy? I mean, I, I mentioned at the earlier at, at the start that you uh, talk about the fact that many of the world's healthiest democracies are are monarchies. I think that you find that nine of the t out of the top fifteen democracies on the Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index in twenty eighteen are monarchies. I mean, is, is, is that just coincidence or, or are, are you suggesting that there's actually a, a causal process at work there, whereas whereby monarchy helps democracy? No, I, I wouldn't push it as far as to suggest there's a causal link. I think it is largely a coincidence. A hundred years ago, at the turn of the 20th century, almost all the countries in Europe were monarchies. And those monarchies that have disappeared were swept away uh, mainly as a result of the First World War and then the Second World War. Um, and those that have survived, uh, the countries you mentioned at, at the beginning, are countries around, in effect, the northwestern rim of Europe plus Spain. And I think they've survived for geopolitical reasons more than anything else. But I think monarchy is perfectly compatible with democracy. And some people might think that monarchy has a sort of role in bringing the nation together, unifying people, giving them a sense of common mission and purpose that might help democracy to survive. You think that would be overblown? 
Well, I wouldn't want to push it too far, but it's true that because of the extraordinarily high opinion poll ratings, uh, the people in these European countries show great loyalty uh, towards their monarchy um, and to the extent uh, that the monarch is the head of certain public institutions, um, then it may help uh, to improve the legitimacy of those public institutions. And the strongest example perhaps being the armed forces, where formerly the monarch is the commander in chief of the armed forces. Then the armed forces formerly owe their loyalty to the monarch rather than, as it were, to the government of the day. Um, these are mainly ceremonial things, um, but they probably play a small part in strengthening support for the public institutions, um, which the monarch is also seen to support and to lead. There are, of course, very powerful counter-arguments to the idea that monarchy is defensible in democracy. And what, what would you say to the view that monarchy is a symbol of inequality and therefore simply incompatible with people's aspirations for modern society? I mean, it may be that people like monarchy, but it may be that people have a kind of false consciousness going on there uh, and that really we would all be much better off if we freed ourselves from this way of thinking and uh, moved to a, a society that didn't have such inequality at its heart. Well, it's true that the most of the royal families lead very privileged lives um, in palaces uh, and very large country houses but they are, in effect, gilded cages, um, and they have no choice. Uh, and all these uh, palaces are supported out of public funds. It's the government that decides how much the monarchy costs, not the monarchy itself. Um, and the funding can be reduced as well as increased. In Spain, the country where the monarchy is least popular, the funding for the monarchy has been reduced. In Belgium, the funding for one member of the royal family has been reduced um, because he seemed to be a poor team player. Um, so uh, there is that kind of accountability, financial accountability as well. But I think for me, one of the strongest arguments against uh, having a monarchy is the sacrifice which members of the royal family, close members, uh, are required to make. Yes, they lead lives of great privilege, but in a gilded cage. Um, they lack many of the most important freedoms that you and I take for granted. They have no freedom of speech. They have limited freedom to travel. They cannot marry whom they like because they have to get the consent of the government of the day if they're close in line of succession. They uh, have almost no privacy because of the very intrusive uh, nature of the modern media. And if you ask, uh, any friend, would you advise um, any member of your family to get married to one of the royals? Most sensible people um, would say not in a million years. It's not a very desirable um, kind of life to have. And you mentioned media scrutiny there. Can, can monarchy maintain its mystique and uh, continue to glide serenely on as this symbol of of, uh, of the nation, given the pressures of the modern media? I think that is one of the greatest threats to monarchy now. Uh, I mentioned the loss of privacy. 
and uh, harassment of the royal family in pursuit of these stories um, is particularly bad in the UK with the phone hacking scandal. But there have been similar instances uh, in all the other European countries as well. Um, and harassment now is rife on social media too. And the conflation of monarchy with celebrity, I think, is a real threat to the monarchy. Um, and we've seen recently in the decision by uh, Prince Harry and Meghan, in effect, to leave the royal family, um, the sacrifices that I was talking about earlier, which for them became intolerable, but they've moved into the world of celebrity while trying to perhaps to retain some of the magic of monarchy. And I think that's very dangerous to try and mix the two. Mm. You mentioned Harry and Meghan there. A another lesson that some might take from that episode is that the monarchy, at least in the UK, is not good at accommodating different kinds of people from, from the traditional members of the royal family and therefore perhaps is not suited to uh, a multicultural age, an age of much more diverse populations. Well, um, I think most monarchs uh, try very hard to support multiculturalism in all its forms. We see that very strongly in the Scandinavian countries, uh, for example, where interestingly, they have an established church, just as in the UK. So the Lutheran church is the uh, established church in Sweden, in Norway, in Denmark. The monarch uh, is head of the church. They've had degrees of disestablishment in Sweden um, and I think in Norway, but that's still broadly the case. And the monarch has to be uh, a member of the Lutheran faith. But um, all those monarchs go out of their way to show their support for and their interest in all the other faiths. Uh, the Queen of Denmark is on record as saying things very similar to those uh, made by the Queen of the UK, that through being a defender of the faith, she sees herself also as being defender of faith in general. Uh, and it's mainly through that and through visiting mosques uh, and synagogues and showing their support for all the other many different faiths and traditions that monarchs, I think, can be defenders of multiculturalism. And if you, you, you said earlier that the principal defence of monarchy lies in public support, do we have evidence that that public support does extend across different communities within these countries? Or is it primarily a feature of the, the majority population in each country? I'm sorry, I can't now remember the detail of the opinion polls to know whether there's an ethnic breakdown. There are age breakdowns, um, and interestingly, support for the monarchy is quite, quite strong across all age groups. So, uh, yes, I, I, I did read that chapter this morning, so I should be able to remember myself, but uh, we, we will have to go and consult the book. Uh, people can go and read and, and find out the full details on that. So we like on this podcast to think about the, um, the policy implications of research, and indeed that has been the central focus of your work at the Constitution Unit for the past, past quarter century. So what are the practical lessons of all of this? You, you, you concluded clearly that monarchy can be a force for good. Uh, so what does a monarch or a monarchy need to do in order to succeed? Well, 
Ironically, although all my previous work uh, has been done with a policy strongly in mind, this is the first project I've ever undertaken simply out of intellectual curiosity. Um, but you won't be surprised. Um, there are some policy conclusions, um, nevertheless, that have come out of it. Um, I'm afraid they're pretty obvious. Um, the first and most important lesson is to remain strictly neutral um, and a monarch who ceases to be neutral risks losing their throne. And I mentioned those who've been forced to abdicate um, as a result, in some cases, of their loss of neutrality. A second lesson uh, which I got quite intrigued by is the need to, to keep the royal team as small as possible. Um, that's perhaps obvious. It helps to minimize the risk uh, of any individual member of the family going astray and bringing the monarchy into disrepute. Um, but it's hard to say what the ideal size of a royal team is, given the huge variation in population size of the populations they need to serve. So a country like Norway, with a population of only about 5 million, can have a much smaller royal family. In effect, it's just four people, the king and queen, um, and the crown prince and princess. Then a country like the UK, where the population is now over 66 million, um, and until recently, our royal team was 15 people, and we needed a much bigger team to serve that much bigger population. But the bigger the team, as I say, the bigger the risk that someone will get drawn into scandal. And we saw that last year um, with uh, Prince Andrew uh, and the difficulties over the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. Interestingly, again, it's a small example of accountability because within days, uh, Prince Andrew was forced in effect to leave public life. Um, so individual minor royals can also be accountable uh, as well as the monarch himself or herself. The uh, final lesson, I think, um, but it stays with the theme of accountability, um, is that for a monarch or monarchy to survive, they have to understand that although hereditary, the monarchy is accountable like any other public institution. Uh, it depends on public funds um, and ultimately for it to continue, it depends on the support of the government and of their people. Final question. Uh, you mentioned there your intellectual curiosity lead, led you to um, pursue this project. What was that curiosity? What, why, why is monarchy so fascinating? I mean, I guess I'm kind of asking, why is it fascinating to you? But it's fascinating to so many people. Why, why, what is the fascination of monarchy? For me, I think um, it was the, the paradoxes and, and the contradictions that I learned about through an earlier, much smaller project planning for the accession and coronation oaths in the UK when the Queen dies. And the central paradox is one we've touched on. Um, how is it that an ancient hereditary institution, often going back to the Middle Ages, um, has survived as a central part of modern democracy? Then looking at the formal texts of the constitutions of these other monarchies, I found a huge gap between the role depicted for the monarch in the constitution, which is one of real power, uh, as I said, in a country like Norway or Denmark, if you just simply read the constitution, you would think the monarch runs the country. Um, so there's that paradox, 
with the modern reality that they have no political power. But there's also the contradictory demands, I think, which we place upon them. So we want monetary to be special, to be a living fairy tale. And yet its members must also be accessible and be seen to be ordinary individuals with the same kind of tastes and interests as us. We expect them to be interesting and entertaining, to provide constant fodder um, for the tabloids and for the media, and yet they always uh, must be unimpeachably neutral. And that's a really hard balancing act sometimes for them to follow. Um, And lastly, we expect royal families to demonstrate impeccable family values and to be models for the rest of us in terms of good behavior. And yet they're just as human and fallible as the rest of us with children who go astray and marriages that break down, but they have to endure all that in the harsh spotlight of relentless publicity. And so having begun to study a little bit all those features of the British monarchy, what led me to do this comparative project was to see how many of those features are to be found in the other European monarchies too. And broadly speaking, they are to be found in all those constitutional monarchies. Fascinating. Robert, you have taken us into really interesting territory. Hopefully other political scientists will follow in your footsteps. Uh, So the book that we have been discussing is called The Role of Monarchy in Modern Democracy, European Monarchies Compared. It's edited by Robert Hazel and Bob Morris and features contributions from many leading political scientists, historians and legal scholars from across the eight countries that it covers. It's published by Hart and it's available now. Next time, we're exploring what people understand by the concept of the economy. In the context of Brexit, it's sometimes suggested that Remainers and Leavers have very different conceptions of the economy, that many Remainers have a, have a top-down view, thinking about the health of the economy as a whole, while Leavers have often an understanding that's rooted in their own experience. But is that really true? Well, our colleague Anna Killick has been doing some really interesting ethnographic research into such questions. Her new book came out over the summer and she'll be joining me next week to discuss it. So do please join us again then. I'm Alan Rennick. Our producer is Abby Turner. Our theme music is written and performed by John Mann. This has been UCL Uncovering Politics. Thank you for listening. <laughs>